Now, how many of you struggle to wake up in the morning? So some of us are not morning people. We like to hit that snooze button once or twice. Well, today's message is about waking up, and the challenge of waking up. Not waking up in the morning, but a different kind of being awake, of being alert, of being alive. And so we're in Romans chapter 13. We've been studying this letter now for a while, this letter from Paul, an early follower of Jesus, to this church in Rome. And the theme of the letter, as the title of the series, is the gospel of God, this good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to make all things new. That this sin that people do has changed and marred and warped the world, but God sent His Son Jesus to change that, to forgive us of our sins and to change and to transform us. And so He's been writing, and we've been reading this for about the last 22 weeks, learning about this. And there's a change in the letter in the beginning of chapter 12 where he's been talking about all these things and he begins to really focus on what this life looks like. Now, all of it is about our life. All of it revolves around that. There's not a clear distinction between here's the theology and here's the action, but there's a definite change in the feel of the movement at the start of chapter 12. And start of chapter 12 really begins to spell out more clearly, maybe more practically, what it looks like to live a life that reflects the love of God. And how to love people. And the end of chapter 12 kind of talks a lot about that. What love looks like. That love must be sincere and it hates what it is evil. That it blesses those who persecute you and blesses and do not curse. That it does not overcome, is not overcome by evil, but overcomes evil with good. And then there's a little bit of a detour at the start of chapter 13, which looks at our relationship to the government. And how that works out. But at the end of that little section and verse 7 of chapter 13, it talks about giving to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And so he kind of ends that detour and picks up again in chapter 13, verse 8, where it says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And so he picks up on this picture of owing and of obligations. And he says there's really only one debt that matters. Only one that really matters, and that's loving one another. Which kind of links back to the chapter 12 and all that. And I think what he's getting at with that language of let no debt remain outstanding or let you owe no oneself is that we can't ever claim we've loved enough. In other words, this isn't something we fulfill. We get to the end of the day, we get to the end of the week, or we reach a certain point in life and say, I think I've loved my neighbor enough. I fulfilled that obligation. Debt paid. He's saying no. He said, let no debt remain. He said, accept that one. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. It isn't something we pay off. We don't get to the point and say, oh, I'm good. I've loved enough. And not only that, he says it fulfills the law. And what he's pointing at is how this is what the law is about. And so we think of the law as all these things. And he talks about some of the commandments. If you're from the Ten Commandments of you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet. And whatever command there may be are summed up by this one command, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he's saying all these laws, all of what God gave in direction to his people. 
all the ways he told people to obey. And if you go back to the Old Testament, there's all these laws and rules about different things. It's all about loving your neighbor. You think, ah, some of these don't seem to make sense. How do they do it? But these are a little more clear. Say, okay, well, don't kill people. Well, that's a good way to love your neighbor. You know, not stealing from them, that's loving. But there's so many other ways. And so he's saying, this is the summation of the law, to love your neighbor. Now, it's a little harder because in some sense, checklists are easier, aren't they? I mean, if we can check off the list of things, say, well, didn't steal today. Didn't kill anyone today. Didn't commit adultery. I'm good. Look at that. But he said, no, no, no. The question is, did you love your neighbor? And that's a little bit harder, a little bit more challenging. And I think he's getting at this picture of the law as a summation because the law, these rules that had been given to God's people had been used to draw boundaries. And we do the same thing in church today. We use the laws and the rules to draw the boundaries. And by that we say, who's in and who's out? There was a time in church history where maybe it was good Christians didn't dance, right? And so there was a boundary drawn of the laws. Well, there's those who dance and there's those who don't. And those who don't dance are in and those who do dance are outside. And then maybe it was playing cards, and I remember even when we lived in our, we were lived in Sheboygan previously in the congregation and speaking to some of the older members of the congregation and they talk about being raised, you know, where cards were not something Christians did. And the one woman even said she never even learned what the cards were called. They were like the shovels and the puppy paws, <laughs> which we may know as spades and clubs. But that, that, was, that was because cards were not a thing in her family. I mean, eventually she came in and she saw that. But you see how the Jewish people, the laws of circumcision and Sabbath, were drawn as a means to distinguish them and to set them apart. But they became for them a way to keep people out, to set boundaries. And we in the church do the same thing sometimes. We maybe have good things we should be doing. Ways we are to live and we, ways we understand what God is doing. But we create boundaries out of them. And what Paul is getting at here is saying, that's not what the law is for. The law is for loving your neighbor. And so then he goes on to consider, well, well why is that what it's for? And more importantly, how do we do that? And part of what he asks us to do is recognize that there's more going around than what we see around us. I mean, the truth for most of us is, it's a lot to just keep up what's going on in our own lives. To keep up on our calendars and all the things going on. But what Paul and all the other writers of the Bible want us to remind us of is, there's always something more going on. And that something more is what God is doing in the world. What God is doing and what God has done. So for the Roman church, they were living in day to day. They looked around and they saw the rule and the reign of the Roman Empire. They saw the legionnaires on the corner. They saw the banners flying. They would look across and see the Antonia Fortress stationed in this high point over the city of Jerusalem. And it would be easy to go through the day to day and think that Rome is the ruler. And what Paul is reminding them is saying, you have to keep your eyes open. You have to keep your eyes open because there is more going on that we are not living under the reign of Rome, but under the reign of Jesus. And Paul, in fact, begins the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, 
and who through the spirit of holiness, he's talking about Jesus, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying this is the picture that Jesus is the one who's reigning. He's inviting us to live this life and say, we need to live our lives in recognition that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, and reigning king of the world. We need to order our lives. We need to arrange our lives. We need to submit our lives and live all that under the rule of King Jesus. And so he's getting to the picture of that and what it looks like. And so in 13, 11, he says, and do this, in other words, love your neighbor, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And so he's saying, understand the present time. Well, what's the present time that God, what God has done and what he's continuing to do? So to understand the present time is to be aware of all that God is doing, but it's also to be aware of what's going on in the world. And that takes us back to chapter 12 that started off talking about being aware of the schemes and the systems of the world. And so he says, we need to wake up from your slumber. Wake up what? Wake up and see that God is at work. That sometimes we can get so caught up in what's going on and oppressed by the powers and the challenges of the world. Everything going on that we fail to miss or that we do miss, we fail to see what God is doing in the world. So he's saying, wake up. Come out of your slumber because when we're sleeping, we don't notice much going on in the world. And when we get up, we're kind of groggy, we're not aware. And he's saying, wake up and see this thing that God is at work. And then he has this phrase, he says, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And Paul isn't trying to create a timetable. But what he's saying is, we can know this for certain. That wherever we are on God's timetable, wherever we are on the history, we're closer to the end now than we were when we first believed. That God is making movement from this time when Jesus died on the cross to, to the time when he fulfills all things. And wherever our salvation, wherever our decision to follow Jesus comes, it was at some time in the past. And now we're closer to the moment when God will make all things new to the language of theologians is the eschaton, which is the end times, the time when God will make all things new, this final time. And so we talk about the church as an eschatological people. We live in the reality of, we live in the light of, we live in the context of being people who are living in this new age. And by new age, Jesus Christ, remember it says back in Paul in Romans 1 where he says, now reigning in power, declared to be the Son of God. Because Jesus died on a cross, but then God raised him on the third day. And then God seated him at his right hand to live and to reign in power. And so he's talking about this is what we're living in. And Jesus' reign in power is a sign that the new age is coming, that the old order of things, of sin and death, is passing away. And we're coming in the new age or the new creation where God is making all things new. And so we're beginning to come into this new place, and we're living in that. We're living in a new age. We're living in a world that is different that when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, the world changed forever. 
because death and sin had been defeated. Now, we kind of live in that in-between time where we still experience and see those things, but the end has been guaranteed. This new beginning, this new creation has started. And so what Paul is saying is, now we need to live that way. We're living in a new age. We're living in a new time, and so we need to live in that age, not in the past age. A change, a transition has taken place in history, so it's an invitation to wake up and to live in that way. But he says there's a warning, and this is that snooze button, the temptation to maybe go back, to go back to the darkness. He's saying, wake up, because now we're living in light. The world has come under the power of light, but there's a temptation to go back to the darkness. So he says this, he says, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. What's Paul getting? I mean, Paul is, in some sense, stating what we know to be true. Do you think more crimes take place at noon or at midnight? Do they take place in the public or do they play, take place behind closed doors? And Paul's saying there's a sense of darkness because people commit crimes, people do bad things because in the dark, because they don't want to be seen. They want to be hidden because why? Why we can think we can get away with it? If nobody sees us, we can get away with it, right? Maybe if we do it where nobody sees us, then it really didn't happen. Kind of the whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? So it's, it's that other place. And nobody saw it. And so he's saying, put away these deeds of darkness because there's a sense of if it stays hidden, then maybe it didn't really happen. Maybe this sense of idea that maybe we can hide it from others. And so what Paul is saying is we can't live that way anymore. We can't live in this world of darkness. We can't live these deeds of darkness, these things where we're trying to hide, but he says instead to live a life of light. And he offers a list, and it's not a comprehensive list. It's not a full-on list of these are all the deeds of darkness here. Because if Paul had written all the deeds of darkness, it would have gone a really long time. And it keeps going because... Human beings are nothing if not ingenious of coming up with bad things to do. And so he goes on and he talks about this, but he gives examples of what it looks like. And so he talks about carousing and drunkenness and sexual immorality. And what are those? Those are all indulging the self. They're all things to bring pleasure to the self, which is the exact opposite of loving neighbor. He talks about dissension and jealousy, and he's going to talk a whole lot more about that in chapter 14, but again, not love of neighbor. And these were the sins of the Roman Empire. These would have been the things that the people in Rome would have been well familiar with. But they're also things we're well familiar with. And maybe things, people pursue these for different reasons. Sometimes they pursue them to numb themselves to the demand to call love neighbor, because when we stop and we're honest with ourselves, loving our neighbor is hard sometimes. 
And so sometimes we just want to say, oh, this is just so much work. And so people draw themselves to physical pleasures, to debauchery, to sometimes numb themselves to those challenges, sometimes to numb themselves to the pain of life, to get away from things. And to fall into what one writer called the sins of sleepwalkers who don't know or forget that they live in the now time of Jesus. We just start sleepwalking. We fall back into those patterns and we shut ourselves off from God's nearness through self-indulgence. So we're asking ourselves this question. Are we passing the time living in the light of this new day in self-indulgence or does this new day challenge how we live? In other words, the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins and God raised him from the dead and now he's reigning Does that challenge the way we live at all? Does this new life, does the fact that we live in a new world, that the light has dawned and that we're now one day closer to God's ultimate salvation, does that change how we live? And what Paul is warning is that there's this danger that though we live with this nearness of Christ, that this salvation is right at hand, it's present and true, that we just ignore it. We don't pay any attention to it. And so he's speaking of good news and possibility. Because salvation has come in Jesus and its fulfillment is near. And so he's saying not only do we do this, but he's talking about how we live that way. Because it's one thing to simply say, go out and do this. But Paul doesn't simply do that. He talks about how it happens. And so he uses two phrases in verse 12. He says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then verse 14, he says, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And so he's got this picture of putting on the armor of light, of clothing ourselves with Jesus, which is very much like the language he used earlier in chapter 12 where he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This image of putting on the armor of light, of clothing ourselves with Jesus, of being transformed, is about more than just outward appearance. Paul is getting at something more than just like, oh, just do some nice things and everybody will look out at the outside of you. And this is part of what it is. It's a call to live like Jesus, absolutely. It's a call to do those same things that Jesus did. To love your neighbor as yourself. And if you ever want to know, what does it look like to love my neighbor? Read the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels tell of how Jesus responded to the people around him. How he responded to the outcasts, to the poor, to the women, to the lepers, to all these people around him. This is what love for neighbor looks like. And so part of it is asking ourselves, how does our lives, how does our love, how do our actions reflect what Christ is like? But I think Paul is getting at something a little more. He's saying something about how we live that life, what enables us to do it. And I think what he's saying is if we want to live this life that's not doing the deeds of darkness, but is loving neighbors ourselves, we have to be clothed with Christ himself. Clothed with his power and with his presence. And live out of that power because... We all know too well we can't do it on our own. 
then when we try and do it under our own power, we hit the snooze button and we go back to sleep. We turn the lights off because it's more comfortable living in the dark. And what Paul is getting at is we need to clothe ourselves. In order to live in this way, we need to clothe ourselves with the power and the presence of Jesus Christ and live out of that power. And so one way to do that is a practice of the prayer of recollection in which we remind ourselves of our identity that we're justified. And so this has been a word that's been used throughout the letter to the Romans about being justified. And there's two parts to it. And that's simply what the prayer of recollection is, remembering these two truths. That in Christ, you are fully pardoned and accepted. That you're forgiven. That's truth one. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no, now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So the prayer of recollection, those moment of time to help us live in the light, is to first of all remember that in Jesus Christ, we are fully pardoned, we are fully accepted, we are fully forgiven. Second part of the prayer of recollection is that we are justified in that the Spirit of God is living inside of us to bring about change, that we're being transformed. So we are in Christ and Christ is in us. If you want to think of a simple way to remember the prayer of recollection, it's those two things. First of all, I remember that I'm in Christ, that I'm in Christ, that I'm fully accepted, affirmed, forgiven. But then Christ is in me. And it's by His power, by His Spirit that I live out this new life. That the Spirit of God is living inside of me, bringing about change. And so when we feel ourselves slipping back into the darkness, when we feel ourselves slipping back into that way, when we feel ourselves struggling to love our neighbor, we begin with that prayer reminding ourselves, first of all, that in Christ I am accepted, that I'm loved, that I'm forgiven. But then Christ is in me, that his love is flowing in me, that the Spirit of God is working in me to help me love my neighbor. And it does two things. One, it helps us, it prevents us from moralism. Self-righteousness of like, oh, look how good I am. Because the reminder is, no, we're not good. We're accepted, we're affirmed because of Jesus Christ. And about making decisions out of false guilt and shame. And it also prevents us from relying on our own power. Because it's so easy to do. But instead you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says, clothe yourselves with Jesus. He's not just saying dress up and look and pretend to be like Jesus. He's saying put on Jesus. And when we put him on, we put on his power, we put on his presence. Jesus wants us to do good things. It's not a hard thing. It's not a matter of like, oh, I'd like to do things, but I don't think God really wants me to. No, God does. God wants you to live in the light. God doesn't want you to live in the darkness. God wants you to come out of that and live that life. St. Augustine, or first, initially Augustine of Hippo, or some people say Augustine, uh, born around the year 340, lived in northern Africa. And he wrote a book, he wrote a number of books, but one of his most famous books was a book called Confessions. And in Confessions, the Confessions of Augustine, he tells the story of his life, and I shared some of those stories a number of weeks ago, about how he lived a life of exactly what we read about here, of sexual immorality and debauchery. He was 
enjoyed running around and carousing with his friends, of trying to sleep with as many women as possible, all these things, trying to find fulfillment in life. He knew something about the Christian faith. His mother was a Christian. He knew this Christian faith in his head, but it hadn't changed and hadn't transformed him, and he was struggling to figure out how to come about with this transformation. And one day he was with some friends of his, and he was going through this moment, this time of challenge. And he came to this point where he still couldn't take that step of actually becoming a Christian. He was still struggling to get to that point because he feared giving up the good life. He feared it's like, well, but how, how you know, but I'm having, a, I'm having a lot of fun right now. I mean, I know God wants me to, but boy, that old life is fun. And he fears what's going to happen if he gives that up. And so he writes this. He says, My lower instincts, which had taken firm hold of me, were stronger than the higher, which was untried. And the closer I came to the moment, which was to mark the great change in me, the more I shrank from it in horror. So he's coming to this moment, but he keeps pulling back. And he experiencing this massive internal conflict and he's struggling so much with him. Finally, he runs out of the house that he's in and he just kind of throws himself at the foot of a tree and he's laying there kind of in this anguish, this struggle, this challenge of what's going to happen. And as he's sitting there, he hears a child. He's not sure if it's a boy or a girl who's playing and they're bouncing a ball and they're saying, tello lega, tello lega, which means take and read or, or take and look. And he hears those words and he's wondering, well, is this a game that a child plays? Because I, I know a lot of games that children play, but I'm not familiar with that game. But he hears those words again of take and read. And he remembers how a friend of his had this experience where he went and he took out the scripture and he just opened it up and he looked to see what the Bible said. He went, he said, well, I'm going to do that. He sensed that it's somehow maybe this child that God was communicating through this child for him to take and to read. And so he went back in. And he opens to the Bible that his friend Olypius had opened. And he opens this passage that says, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the Spirit. And after reading those words, Augustine decided to give himself and his life to Christ, to become a Christian. And then he wrote later on his confessions and he shared it with other people for the same purpose, so that they too can be forgiven by God's great mercy and by his love. And as you read on, this takes place in about chapter 8 or book 8 of the Confessions. He goes on, and he goes on and tells a story. And Augustine, spoiler alert, doesn't come, become perfect at that moment in time. But he had lived this life of wildness and crazily, of living in the dark and giving in to these powers, living this life of darkness. And he gives his life to Jesus, but those temptations, those desires, those struggles are still there. But what Augustine writes about is, is that the difference is now that he has Jesus to help him. 
that he's not fighting these struggles all on his own. And that God's grace and mercy are there for him to trust in when he falls prey to sin. Because he is in Christ and Christ is in him. Augustine's story is a story of God's love for, for and pursuit of him. And also a story of God's love of and pursuit of us. And that's what Paul is talking about here. We may read it as a story of, well, Paul's just telling me i got to love my neighbor. He's telling you, yes, but he's saying that because it comes out of the love of Jesus. And we only live that way because of the love of God inside of us. We only live that way because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We live that way by clothing ourselves with the armor of light, by clothing ourselves with Christ Jesus. And when we come to the communion table in just a few minutes, that's another way for us to picture it. If the image of putting on clothing or putting on armor doesn't work, consider the picture of the table. Because at the communion table, what happens is God invites us all to his table. He invites us to the table. As the banners say, we come from north and south and east and west to sit at the table in the kingdom of God. And the words of communion say, all are invited to come to the table. It's a picture of God's forgiveness in us because we break bread, we pour out a cup, and we say, this is Christ's body broken for us, His blood shed for us. It's a picture of God's forgiveness for, of us, that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven, we are in Christ, we are accepted that there is no condemnation now. But then we come to the table, and we are accepted, we are received, and then we come and we eat. We take it in. Now we eat for different reasons, don't we? I'm not talking simply at the community table, but your meals through the day. Some of us eat because we're bored. Some of us eat because we're hungry. Some of us eat because it's that time. But ultimately, why do we eat? Because we need nutrition, we need food to sustain us, to help our body live. We have to take in the right balance of micronutrients and macronutrients and proteins and carbohydrates, all these right things to feed in our body. And we know that when we don't eat the right kinds of food, when we don't take the right kinds of things in, it affects our health and our livelihood. And so we come to the communion table and we take in what? The body and the blood of Christ. We take in what we need, not simply for a physical life, but to live the spiritual life. We take Jesus Christ inside of us, and his life is metabolized into loving our neighbor. And so we come to the table, and maybe today you need to come to the table because you need that experience of forgiveness. You need to come and to receive that forgiveness because you need to be reminded that you are in Christ. That there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So you're invited to the table to come and to receive his forgiveness. Maybe you need the table because you're struggling to love a neighbor. Maybe a family member, maybe someone close to you, maybe a coworker, maybe somebody, and you're struggling, you're thinking, I want to love my neighbor, but it's so hard. Then come to the table and receive Jesus. Receive his love 
and take it inside of you because Jesus longs for you to love your neighbor. He wants to. He wants to empower you through the power of the Spirit living in you to love your neighbor. So come and receive again a reminder that Christ lives inside of you. And that the love for your neighbor isn't something you have to work up on your own, but can come from the outflow of God's love for you. And so we come to the table.